This is Fundraising Radio, episode number 25, and today is a guest speaker. We have Joy Maggie, the founder of Rallybound, that raised roughly 200000 and then was acquired for about $10 million. And this episode will focus on how a startup should acquire its first institutional customers and how startups get acquired. So, Maggie, let's get started by you giving us some background on yourself and on Rallybound. Sure. So I co-founded Rallybound with my business partner, Shmuley Pinson, in 2013. And we built an enterprise-grade fundraising platform for nonprofit organizations to help them raise more money online. And by enterprise-grade, it was highly customizable, highly configurable, really integrated into other different types of systems and applications and built for scale. We grew that to around 30 people, 300 clients, and a few million dollars in annual recurring revenue. And the way our revenue model and business model worked is we took a percent of the donation transaction online. So maybe in today's nomenclature, it might be a fintech application but we yeah. basically monetized the payments going through our system. And we sold that in August of 2018. Nice. And for how much did you sell it? So we sold it for just over $10 million nice. to a private equity firm and a group called Blue Star Innovation Partners, which is Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys uh, family office venture fund in Dallas. We'll get back to the acquisition part later on. First of all, I would love to hear more about Rallybound because it's about fundraising. We're on a show called Fundraising Radio, so I think it would make complete sense to go a little bit in depth into the technology itself. How were you how how do you even manage to get those 300 clients? So what was that you were providing? Is it like Kickstarter yeah. for nonprofits or uh, yeah, so it was, you can think of it as crowdfunding. Uh, the, the industry thinks it or, or frames it as peer-to-peer -peer fundraising, which I, I have issues with that, that terminology as mm -hmm. it's a 80s networking uh, protocol. But uh, the concept is, is individuals who are raising money on your behalf. So it's, it's not a brand per se reaching out to potential constituents. It's a single individual like myself who, you know, I, I recently in November ran the New York City Marathon and I ran the marathon raising money for an organization called Back on My Feet. So I created a fundraising page on Back on My Feet's campaign and I sent it out to my friends, family and coworkers and raised about $3,000 for their organization. So the model is very uh akin to kickstarter uh you can even think of it as like an enterprise gofundme what, what we built but in the early days thinking about the launch the growth the fundraising so we raised a couple hundred thousand dollars from some angel investors early on and the way that we grew was was really off the backs of, of the revenue of our customers so even at a couple hundred thousand dollars i would still say that we were bootstrapped for all intents and purposes we didn't raise any institutional capital we didn't go out and raise any 
other money in the uh, in the time frame starting starting in 2013. So the way that we grew was building a product that users wanted and wanted to pay for, and we served their needs. They they were our investors, if you want to think of it. They were the stakeholders mm -hmm. that we were targeting. And that's a, a model that I think is is used quite successfully by entrepreneurs and founders all over the globe. It might not necessarily be as sexy as some of the uh, seed rounds and five million dollars and posting on TechCrunch, but it was a it was a great outcome for our employees, uh, myself and my co-founder and our investors. So let's clarify the situation with the fundraising a little bit. You said that you've raised initially uh, around 200,000 from angel investor, right? Mm -hmm. And then you basically became self-sufficient, living off the profits that you were generating uh, with your business activity. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Any money that we made, we invested right back into the product by hiring software engineers, mm -hmm. salespeople, marketing people, ops. Right. Got it. That's really, that's really cool. I think, uh, being able to become self-sufficient after just 200 key investment, that's, that's really incredible. And, uh, for, by, by, by raising those $200,000, how, how much of a company did you give out to that angel investor? Uh, it was significant. I think it was, I don't recall the exact, uh, uh, percentages or wouldn't necessarily disclose those percentages in, in public but i think it was it was a little outsized in that the product was a sort of spin-off of a line of business on an existing company so uh -huh. if you think about building companies you know there there is no straight line from a to b and as many again i go back to kind of the echo chamber and the media around and this content i think is is valuable but the frame of reference that entrepreneurs, especially first time founders need to think about is, is creating a business, not necessarily raising capital. That's, that's not uh, a success. It's one piece of a, a, a puzzle that you could say is a step in the journey, but in and of itself, raising money is not a, an outcome that is, I would consider uh, a, a, a significant success metric in building an actual business. Absolutely. So, when I think about our angels and our investors, um, they had uh, a significant portion of the business. And when we looked to, to scale, and even if we thought about raising money in the early days, you had to consider uh, who the operators were, myself and my business partner and our future employees, and who our investors were and, and get aligned around the outcomes that you as a partnership building a business want to see. Um, so if you think about building a business to make profit and return those profits to the shareholders, that's one outcome. For us, it was building a product that was valuable to uh, an exit outcome. And that was uh, trying to sell the business to right. um, cash out. So you were basically aiming to the exit from the very beginning, right? Correct. Got it. That's pretty, that's an interesting strategy. I see more and more uh, companies pitching to our uh, venture studio with having their potential acquirers 
on their pitch deck while they're in like pre-pre-seed round. For me, it sounds a little bit weird, but I feel that this is a whole new trend of, of this. And I think it's pretty interesting. Um, so uh, let's talk about your first traction. This is like the, the major question that we always get. How do you get the first clients? So you said that you had uh, about 300 clients who were generating about 2 million to you, which is just great. But how do you get the first, let's say, three of them? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So I think that when you're thinking about customer acquisition and you're thinking about building a product for an audience and you need to monetize the said product, you need to really figure out how to align the features, the value, the benefits that you see in the product that you're building with that potential target audience, user, customer, and their wallet and their budgets. So for the enterprise, if you think about B2B, working with a really small subset of a user base and getting really, really tight with them. And I mean by you know, whether they're your friends, family, or within your network, surveying them, spending time with them, talking with them, understanding their mm -hmm. challenges and trying to empathize with those set of challenges. So in the early days of Rallybound, we actually found, this is a quite an interesting story. So my co-founder, who was the uh, uh, original engineer of the platform, He's a uh, Orthodox Jewish uh, and actually was a rabbi uh, tr uh, by education. <laughs> and we started working with really small community-based Jewish nonprofits. And mm -hmm. what we found in the, the Jewish community is, is that these rabbis needed to raise money for the programs that they were serving. And Shmuley, who, who's my co-founder in Rallybound, knew a bunch of these rabbis in the community and worked with them in a really tight sort of feedback loop in building the product to try to serve their needs. So he understood their challenges, he understood their problems, and him and I worked together to figure out how do we communicate with those users on an ongoing basis to build out the features and construct a value proposition to then go the next level deeper and reach out to more, say, small Jewish community nonprofits. So mm -hmm. you can extrapolate that model to SMB, you can extrapolate it to the Fortune 500, but you really need to carve out a specific user and use case and work with them really, really closely to figure out what is your product, what is the MVP or V1 of your product, and how much value, exponential value, is that going to provide to that user out of the gate? Right, that's super valuable advice. I completely agree with the strategy. Uh, I think it's basically the only thing that might work. Uh, now I want to ask you how much approximately did you spend on the first MVP that you built, the one that started uh, generating some money for you? I, I mean, for 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 uh, uh, two co-founders who raised a couple hundred thousand dollars, you you spend a hundred percent of your time on that. I think. Uh, maybe maybe 95% of your time, you're carving out about 5% of your time to figure out sort of value construction and messaging so that as soon as you nail that first use case, you can actually figure out how to get a second set subset of customers or how you can 
build another feature that's going to serve that specific customer. I would say those are two mm -hmm. different paths. Um, but you spend all your time on that until you figure out and crack that code uh, to, to understand, you know, when that user is going to give you money because they've seen value in the product that you built. Right. So the question is, how much do you spend before you got the first dollar off profits out of this? Uh, uh, I see. Um, I I think it ranges. I think that depending on the user, depending on the use case, um, if you're looking at, and again, I, I have more experience on the B2B side, but on the consumer end, there's probably, it's, it's a much higher bar and, and a barrier to entry, but uh, providing a consumer application, you could probably spend very little time in terms of validating that market if you believe that the user is going to say pay 99 cents for your app right now scaling it is a completely different issue but in terms of what your 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 specific question around that first dollar um i think that you would have to validate on the b2b side what is the version of the product whether it's bare bones versus maybe a more holistic build for that first user to give you say $10 a month and they're going to pay at least for a year. Um, and, and that time frame can range. That can range from maybe three to six months depending on the application or it could take a year to year and a half depending on, on the, the application. How long did it take you personally to, to do that? So when we were building out Rallybound, I think it took about six months um, mm -hmm. before uh, a user, a potential client said, yes, we'll actually pay for this. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that you, you set a price point for what you think you're building uh, on the B2B side, but then you have to heavily discount it um, maybe next to nothing to get that first user or get that first two users. So I, I don't necessarily believe or subscribe to the, you should be giving away something for free, especially in, in B2B, uh, because if you're the freemium model out of the gate, there's just, there's very little value, uh, a value, value exchange in the early days if a user isn't actually paying anything. Yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, you just have to figure out what's the quickest path to that first dollar and figure out how quickly that can scale either from that specific user base or to uh, uh, adjacent user bases within that segment. Absolutely. I just love the response. I love it. Uh, so let's talk, let's go back to the user acquisition part. Um, right now, I mean, not, not right now because right now the company is sold, but on your latest... Uh, like let's say last year of the of your of you being in charge of rally bonds, um, how were you acquiring users? How how were you scaling? Did you just hire um, salesmen who were calling the um, nonprofits and just seeing if there's any way you can help, or how how was it working? Yeah, it's a good question. So in the early days of Rallybound, when we were building, we skewed in terms of resourcing we skewed heavily towards engineering and design uh we the first few hires we had one uh business development hire which was uh across sort of marketing and sales who assisted me in in the sales process because i was the first quote-unquote salesperson 
Uh, and then we also hired um, a designer and two engineers. And what we found was myself and, and uh, the BD individual was that cold calling was not going to produce the result that we needed in the time that we needed it. So we were looking to increase revenue, albeit significantly, but just in certain multiples. And we realized that just between the two of us or myself working half time and him working half time on, on sales, we just weren't getting the results, results on the outbound side. In concert, what we did was we tried to produce high quality content that would attract the nonprofit administrator or manager to our site to basically just read a blog post or check out an infographic and share it. And that worked really well for us. We designed infographics around the industry. We used uh, public data and repackaged it, uh, like public data in terms of like industry reports. And we just repackaged it and it looked nicer and made it say cooler or sexier in, mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. illustration. And then that started to get shared. So we designed these infographics around the top 30 uh, highest nonprofits uh, raising money in our in our space and those nonprofits started sharing it and that had our logo on it and then so people started coming to our site uh, so that worked well I think that that got us a little bit of an attention for uh, very little money and, and, and frankly effort because we we outsourced a lot of this content creation so content marketing was key. The other way that we grew in the early days was actually uh, product integration. So I think, you know, for a time people coined this as growth hacking. I think that term has been just bastardized in certain ways, <laughs> but uh, we basically evaluated what our clients tool set was their, their say internal tech stack and figured out what were the systems that we could connect to, to reduce the friction in which our user would potentially use our product. And in reducing that friction, what we were trying to provide was exponential value for that organization to come to Rallybound to use our system because we, for instance, integrated with their Salesforce CRM and we could uh, sync their data seamlessly across all of their fundraising campaigns. That's, and that going. turned out to be one of our biggest growth levers. That's a really smart move. That's I believe that integration, uh, merging several different tools into one is it's a key in the uh, 21st century where no one wants to use multiple tools. Uh, anyways, last question before we go back to the question of the acquisition is uh, why not profits? Why not uh, for profits? Yeah, I think we. Um... Well, so so at the outset of the company, as I mentioned, the company was first a service line of business in a tech shop uh, here in Los Angeles. I was actually in Torrance, uh, the South Bay of, of LA. And what they found was they were the, the two or three engineers that were working on this was they were basically customizing these really large software packages. They were expensive. They were not integrated. They looked like crap. Uh, and they were sort of building these microsites for these nonprofits. And what they quickly realized was they could just build uh, uh, their own 
and try to sell that to to their their customers because they had the trust of those customers and they said look we're going to build you a better product so that was sort of the dot you know uh o dot five of of the version of the product and they uh that's how they figured out how to make money on this line of business and then they spun it out to to an actual product so i think in the fundraising world um you know they again they they started with the customer when the customer just happened to be these rabbi these local rabbis who were Mm -hmm. servicing servicing the jewish community and that's where they found a a niche to, to build a business yeah, that's that's pretty that's really reasonable and pretty interesting. Uh, so let's go to the acquisition question. How how did it happen? Like you were just emailed, someone approached you personally. How did you get the offer? Uh, yeah, so it's um it was kind of interesting in that we were competing with uh, public large public companies that had five billion dollar market caps to other startups that were capitalized to raising over 50, 50 million dollars. So we had lots of competition. Um, And even later in the game, just to kind of reiterate how quote unquote hot this space was, is Facebook even launched their own product. So if you go on Facebook fundraisers, that's basically what Rallybound was Uh in the early days and and, and still is. Um, There's this adage that, you know, uh, VCs or founders or investors might say that, oh, you know, what happens if Amazon comes into your space? Mm -hmm. For early stage builders, by the way, that's an amazing sign that you're doing something right because a large (laughs) incumbent wants to enter your space. So that is complete market validation. So that should not be scary uh, in the least. Anyways, um, the going back to um, the the sort of market validation, and, and the, the uh, impetus for the um, acquisition was we were in a really hot space. There were lots of companies that were being created uh, around nonprofit fundraising, uh, crowdfunding for, for organizations, so on and so forth. And we were a basically profitable entity that had raised very little money, which makes us very attractive for buyers. And I think you know, at the end of the day, I've, I've come to truly believe that great companies are bought and not sold. And if you think about that and take it to heart as a, as an entrepreneur, all you need to do, not all you need to do, you need to focus (laughs) on your business. You need to, you need to build a valuable business for your customer and everything else will fall in place. And, uh, so the way that the acquisition started was, literally cold calls and and we would get emails from vcs and private equity and strategics uh for you know once or twice a week uh between the two of us sometimes our like our salespeople would get emails like Mm -hmm. hey are you raising money hey do you want to be acquired hey this hey that so it was a pretty frothy space at the frothy in a frothy time in early 2018 and uh I was actually ignoring most of those offers. I was not returning any of those emails or phone calls. Actually, my my co-founder wasn't either, um, but he actually did decide to return one email and entertain a conversation uh, with the folks at, at Blue Star, and that started the whole process. Okay, so it was just basically an accident after you've been reached 
by many many funds, right? It was a cold call, yeah. Oh god, <laughs> making a ten million acquisition on a cold call—that's that's impressive. <laughs> All right, yeah, uh, so let's talk about last topic for this episode, and it's going to be on your own fundraising. How did you reach the angel, and at which point did you decide that it's time to raise those two hundred thousand dollars? Yeah. So, and this is something that actually I'm I'm you know thinking about today and these days as I, as I look to, to launch a new venture. When I think about raising money at the earliest stage, what I would advise, and I'm putting this into practice, so it's not just advice that I would tell other people, I would look at executives, operators, and obviously uh, investors who have built or operated or scaled businesses in the segment or space that you're looking to build in. Mm -hmm. So if you think about um, SMB, so maybe just retail, uh, if you were building out a either CRM or point of sale application, maybe something like Square for a retail, if you were to get, say, a vice president at the uh, national office at McDonald's to write you a $50,000 check. That is immediate validation to every retail in the country, uh, say food mm -hmm. service, that your product is potentially worth something because you've convinced that vice president at McDonald's to write you a $50,000 check. True. So, so you I think about it in terms of that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great advice, and many and more and more people start following it. But how did you? So did you raise from someone in the field of nonprofit fundraising who was an executive at some big company, or? Uh, no, no, there wasn't that. The Rallybound didn't follow that model. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the rise of the operator angel these days, I think, is is critical in starting sure. businesses. And whether whether you never raise another dime and you are able to build a sustainable, profitable business in in off of very little capital. I think that entering a new space uh, or trying to provide market validation at an earlier stage, and I'm talking about pre-revenue and potentially pre-product, if you're able to get an operator angel that writes you a small check that has experience and domain expertise in that market, you're going to have a, a massive head start. That's true. That's true. Um, absolutely, extremely useful advice. The problem here for me is actually reaching those people and making them interested because tons and tons of people message them. Usually those are salesmen who are trying to sell them some stupid services or something like that. And this leads to them ignoring basically all messages from people they don't know. So how, how would you recommend to approach them then? Yeah, so... In terms of approaching and contacting and getting the ear of an operator angel, first of all, if you don't know these people now in, in your network and you're trying to establish a relationship with them, the first touch point of contact should not be, hey, I have a business idea. Can you write me a check? Obviously, that's that's yeah. Silly. But I think and I even you know done this going back to my days of undergrad or, or grad school is just, if you think about a, having a student mentality, if you think about 
having a researcher mentality. If you're, if you find say that operator angel, or if you suspect that this executive might have enough money and might be potentially interested in your uh, potential product, I would find their email address, put together a series of three or four really valuable questions that you're trying to answer in your early days of market validation and email them. Say, hey, would you kindly respond? I'm sure you're extremely busy. Would you kindly respond to these three to four questions as I'm trying to do some research on a potential market validation in your space? I would guarantee you if it's a succinct, polite and targeted personal email, you know, that executive would kindly respond and, and give you the time at least to write the email. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the first first touch point. And then from there, you try to establish a relationship with that individual and, and continue to ask them questions and feedback. People, you know, want to be helpful to other people. I, I find most people. Uh, and if you frame it in a way that, um, you know, compliments them, it's polite, uh, and you're able to extract some value out of those exchanges, that's a good way to start finding out who could potentially write you a, a small check at an early stage. True, true. That's, that's, that should be working, should be working. Um, so let's talk about last thing, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, so after you, your company was acquired, what's what are you doing now? So uh, you said that you were thinking of starting your own venture. Let's talk about that a little bit. So there are most of my listeners are really founders who already have a company and who are thinking of fundraising. But I bet there are some people who are like, hey, I should do something like that and raise millions of dollars. So let's talk about how you're looking for this new venture. Yeah, so I... We were acquired in August of 2018, and I stayed on with, uh, so we, we basically created with the private equity group and, and Blue Star, we created a new entity called Neon One. So Neon One is a company that I'm an advisor in, and uh, it's Rallybound is now part of that entity. And you can check it out at neonone.com, and it's a suite of tools for nonprofit organizations to help them operate and grow. I left in December as a operator there, and now I'm just in a pure advisory capacity. And I've been looking at what space I want to dive into next. And basically my father has been in air cargo for four decades. Oh. And after a short amount of time of researching the software and the systems that interconnect our global supply chain, I've basically decided that I want to spend the next few decades trying to figure out this space and the software around it. And using my previous expertise around payments and financial transactions, I'm sort of focused on where are there software opportunities for payments and finance and transactions within the supply chain and some going to be working on that for uh, for a while. So if anybody has any interest or expertise in supply chain payments, whether it be air, sea, trucking, and rail, intermodal uh, freight payments, contact me. Absolutely. I will leave your LinkedIn uh, link in the description of this episode. Uh, so last, last, last question, and then we'll wrap it up. 
one advice for founders who are just getting to the field of uh, startups? What should they do first? Three steps. Yeah, I think don't go it alone. Align yourself with either a network or a co-founder, which is obviously much harder these days, or a series of potential uh, uh, either wealthy executives or uh, experienced operators in the space that you want to attack. So uh, don't go it alone. Uh, to dig really deep when you do find that target customer. So if you identify the user, if you identify the pain and the need, you know, there's a old saying that um, people don't want, want vitamins, they want painkillers. So <laughs> really dig deep in terms of identifying that pain point with the potential user. And then spend time with them, spend time in the field, spend time with your users, for t spend time with your target audience. You should be spending four or five times more time with your potential users than you are with your potential investors. Um, so don't go it alone. Identify your potential user and get to know them, be able to empathize with them, put yourself in their shoes uh, and just spend more time with your target audience. That's lovely. Straight to the point. I absolutely love it. Thanks, Joy, a lot for sharing those responses. I love basically all of them and hope your new venture really, really blows everything up in a good way, in a good way. Thanks awesome. for coming up. I, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. You really thought it's the end of the episode? Nope, not yet. In these uncertain times when a weird virus is spinning out of control and investors are trying to figure out where to put their money not to lose it all, I have an answer. Invest in human capital. I will be among the first 10 people to participate in something called Human IPO, so shortly about how it works. You can buy futures on my time now when it costs just $100 per hour, and when I become Mark Zuckerberg 2.0 and my time is worth $1,000 per hour, you can sell it or redeem it, either making 10x return or bringing me to your firm as an advisor or speaker for a few hours. My offering is not live yet, so now you can only subscribe to my updates. But please do so and become the first one to buy my time when my offering goes live. To sum it up, in dark days, buy time, not toilet paper. And your money won't be flushed into the toilet. I'll leave a link to my profile on Human IPO in the description of this episode. And thanks again for listening to Fundraising Radio.